This is the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Morton from the Transformation Space. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. And, and perhaps you could just start by telling our listeners a little bit about what it is that you do at Transformation Space and the, the kind of path that you, you took to get there. Yeah, okay. So why don't I start with my path? Because it, it leads into what I do. I'm from Auckland. I was educated in Auckland, went to one of the top girls' schools, and I guess I would be regarded as a high achiever at the school. I did very well. I was very focused on my academics, and I got to the end of sixth form and decided that I had enough of the rules, and I wanted to go on to achieve all the career success that I dreamed of. I was very ambitious, and I wanted to get on with being an adult. I was fed up with being a child. So off I went to Canterbury Uni and did my BCom, and then then I wanted to travel and, and do something else before I went on to what I thought was to be conquering the world. And I went overseas, spent some time in Canada and in London, but ultimately found myself in Sydney working at doing a graduate program for one of the advertising agencies over there. And to cut a, a long career story short, I did very well. I was promoted and promoted and ended up in a, a big American organization and just kept on getting promoted. And I was in advertising and then marketing and then ended up in sales. And when I was 29, I was asked to come across and come back to New Zealand and, and run the business over here, which was great. So I was thinking, this is good. Good, not great. I was running a you know $50 million business at 29 and I thought, well, that's okay. It's not quite the success that I had in mind, but it's okay. And then in my early 30s came marriage and children. And what I started to experience was that the the way that I pushed myself and my perfectionism and the anxiety I'd always felt about my performance and my career, that's when they, it really started to bite. So I started to feel the effects of that on my health and you know, the demands of having very small children and trying to work a full-time job and still be as ambitious as I ever was. At, at that point, it really came home to roost and I ended up severely burnt out. I was a, a real perfectionist. That was one of my, my big challenges. And I had a lot of anxiety about my performance, as said. So, you know, what that culminated in was just a, a, an enormous level of exhaustion. And eventually I got to the point where I just knew that I couldn't go on. I wasn't enjoying being a mother. I wasn't enjoying my job. I didn't feel like I was my best at anything really. And, you know, I felt this, this dire lack of confidence in who I was, despite all the evidence to the contrary, I'd done really well. I was 30, 36 or something. And, you know, really strongly performing really strongly at a, a, a big multinational organization. I had great career prospects. I was responsible for over $350 million of revenue and, and more than 200 people in my team. So you could say, well, the evidence was strong that I was performing well, but still it didn't, it never felt like enough and I never felt good enough. And the impact on my health was too significant. And I thought, actually, I really need to take some time out to recover. So I resigned from an amazing company I'd worked for for 14 years and took some time off to recover my health, which was very challenging because, you know, I'd spent my life achieving and doing all the things that I thought I was meant to do and wondering how on earth did I end up here in my life? You know, at this point when I should be in my prime, my marriage dissolved and, you know, my health was absolutely dire. I mean, I thought 
burnout, you know, how long can it possibly take to recover? Three months, you know, maybe six months, and then I'll be back into a corporate role. And that just wasn't the case at all. It took me probably three months to work out actually how severely impacted my health had been and to realize that it was going to be a much bigger journey than what I had thought. And towards the time that I was leaving, I, I'd, I'd long worked with an executive coach, you know, probably from my mid-20s in Sydney, I'd worked with an amazing woman and then another amazing woman in Auckland. And in the back of my mind, I had thought and I'd investigated doing some qualifications in Australia, but I thought this that would be an amazing path of, of everything that I do in my work. I really love the leadership aspect and I love the people development and seeing you know seeing what people can actually achieve when they're developed and supported in the right way so when I took that time out I I signed up to do an executive coaching qualification and I mean it was probably at the edge of my capability from a health point of view but it felt important and yeah it felt like a skill that I would have no matter where I went so that I would need no matter where I went in the future so I, I did that and and as I got more deeply into it, I realized this is really powerful, important work, and I'm very good at it. And maybe I could make a career from this. So near on two and a half years ago, I set up the transformation space, working as a leadership coach. And you know, when I say leadership, you know, people will think of leadership as going somewhere, you know, taking other people somewhere, leading others. But a really important aspect of leadership coaching or leadership, I should say, is actually the ability to lead yourself. And as I've gone and, you know, developing this business and working with more and more people, that's probably become my, the area that I'm most fascinated by and that I'm seeing that most people need that sense of, you know, how do I lead myself? How do I find confidence in who I am? How do I, I accept who I'm not? How do I set the right boundaries so that I can have the right life that I want to lead that can incorporate a family, can incorporate a great career without burning myself out or without letting myself down in any way. And how do I, I guess, you know, for a lot of people that I work with, I would say the question that they are, they, they're asking in some ways is how do I create the life that I want to lead yeah. and, and, and what do I want? You know, so I think in a lot of ways, what I do is I'm connecting people back to themselves and, mm -hmm. For me, that's fascinating because, you know, why are we turning up as adults without having any connection to ourselves and what it is that we want and what's acceptable to us and our ability to communicate that with other people? Yeah. So yeah. that's probably, yeah, that's probably what I do in a nutshell. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because I'm interested in the implications of your work for younger people. I mean, I'm aware that your work at the moment is probably with sort of fully-fledged adults most of the time. Yeah. But, of course, we know that there is a bit of an epidemic of anxiety in younger people, mm. especially teenagers, mm -hmm. and, and depression mm. as well. Mm. These kinds of mental health issues that can really hold people back and, and cause difficulties in their lives. I'm very interested in the relationship between anxiety or overcoming anxiety and this idea of self-leadership. And I wonder what we might be doing for people in our education system to help them take ownership of their lives at a much younger stage. Now, in some ways, your, well, your journey is not atypical. There, there are plenty of driven young people who 
are perhaps perfectionistic and, and never feel like they're, they're good enough. And that, that can certainly be a source of anxiety. Mm. There are other sources of anxiety as well. But irrespective of that, would you say that from your experience uh, with your own journey as well as your clients perhaps, that this notion of self-leadership is a bit of a key to getting out of that kind of a hole? For me, it's critical. And I guess in some ways it's the difference between having the life that you want and having the life that you sort of end up with. Mm. And I, one of the most important things that I have experienced in my journey and then subsequently experienced with, you know, with a lot of the clients that I've worked with is this idea, I call it emotional competence. I, you know, other people might call it something different, but for me, what that means is it's that sense that you know, and we all experience emotions. It's totally human to experience emotions, but to to allow the emotion to come to come to you and to come through you. And most of us have a strategy of, well, I'm going to suppress my emotion because emotion is unacceptable in our society, and I don't know what to do with it. And for me, reaching, you know, what I would say is a, a pretty, you know, I mean, I would say I had my midlife crisis quite early. You know, I'm looking at myself thinking, how on earth did I get into this position when fundamentally I have everything going for me? And there was an awful lot of hurt that 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 came from that. You know, why can't I feel confident when I know I'm very good at what I do? I know I'm very smart. I know I'm a great communicator. I know that I'll front up well no matter what the situation. And yet I can't feel any confidence in myself because I have this gnawing sense of not good enough. And for me, actually experiencing all the emotion that went with that was was a really important part of being able to overcome it. But of course, it's not really something that's experienced in our childhood and in our society is that idea that emotion is okay. It's just something that comes and goes. Every emotion is temporary. And anxiety is a fascinating one because you know, most people will know what it feels like to feel to feel anxious. You know, that chronic anxiety is is another step um, entirely. And that you know, I I felt that you know every time I'd front up to work, I'd feel that ongoing you know deep level of anxiety that sort of carried me. I you know I carried it around wherever I went. But in some ways, that's just a there's just a physical sensation of that anxiety that what we do is we push it away and actually it's in the resistance and the resisting of it that in some ways, I mean, there's nothing scientific about this, but it, it makes it bigger in some ways rather than, you know, when I, I would say when I started my business, you know, I'm doing something new and, uh, you know, I did feel a level of anxiety in the, you know, maybe first six months to 12 months, but I would let that, let myself experience that anxiety as part of a normal experience of doing something new and putting myself outside of my comfort zone. But we're not, you know, we don't allow children to experience these emotions and to come to grips with the idea that as a human, you will experience all of these emotions and it's totally normal. And, you know, as I've really dived into this and experienced my own, you know, big emotions, what, what I, you know, the link I will, Maybe one of the ways that I express it is that when I'm feeling, when I feel deeply sad, you know, the mental story that goes along with that is I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I shouldn't be here. No one likes me. I'll never amount to anything. You know, there's the strong mental story that unless you have the sense that this is a big emotion, it's coming, it's, it's also going to go. You start to identify with those stories as right. being real. 
rather than yeah, these are stories that are happening because I'm experiencing this big emotion. But once I get through it, I won't have those stories anymore. But the more you resist it, the more the stories become permanent. And yep. that's what they were for me. You know, no amount of factual, rational evidence could convince me. And I think that's that's one of the things that's most compelling about your personal journey is the extent to which you had plenty of objective evidence that you were doing well, but it didn't yeah. solve things one little bit. And of course, not not all people who experience anxiety do have that objective evidence. The, the, for a lot of people, they're struggling economically. They might be struggling to establish themselves in mm. life. And, and for teenagers, they're not sure where they're going either. So if you were to be working with younger people, I'm wondering what you might say to them when they're not yet established in life, when they're kind of questioning a lot of things about the world as teenagers often do mm. and worrying about the future, worrying about the various problems that the world is grappling with. Mm. So you're talking about this story that we carry around with us that in, in mm. your case it was telling you that you're never good enough. Mm. For, you, For you, was it a matter of finding where that story had come from in the first place in order to address it? I don't know if it was... It was um, finding out where it came from but what I do think it was and you know I would say I found my confidence when I was at one of the lowest points in my life but what I noticed was that no matter where I went and you know I was exploring lots of things at the time wondering how on earth I ended up in this position I noticed that no matter where I went I, I showed up with certain qualities so there's certain qualities that I have as an individual that are unrelated to my job title or how much money I'm earning or what company I'm working for. And almost no matter what I what I do, I can't help but show up with these qualities. Mm. And I, th that was probably the foundation on which I started to build that sense of this is who I am and this is what makes me great. And also there are these other qualities that I don't have them and I'm okay with that because that's not fundamentally who I am as an individual and I see these other people and they've got those other amazing qualities but that's just not that's not what I have but I have these I have this sort of set of packages this sort of set of qualities that this package of qualities that is unique to me and I wonder so much about observing that in teenagers and helping teenagers to understand this this is who you are this is what you'll front up with no matter what and some of those things will be academically rewarded and some of those things will be much more in a, a people or humanity space that we don't, you know, we don't reward that a lot in education. And it's probably something that, you know, that a teacher will see. Like I think, I, I think back to a letter of recommendation that I received so that I could get my university entrance from sixth form. And when I read that letter, the, the principal or maybe it was the deputy principal had written some things about me that, I'd never heard said, and I probably didn't really understand at the time, but, you know, the adults were able to see what the qualities were that I had that, you know, would ensure that I'd be successful going into university at, you know, just turned 17. But no one had ever talked to me about those. No one ever said, you know, this is the kind of person that you are. These are the things that you take, you know, you bring everywhere you go and, and they're really valuable. You know, we're really validated for what we achieve rather than who we are. And I think there's really something in that. And this is a lot of the work that I do with adults is getting them to see what are these amazing qualities that you bring 
everywhere and that, that they're inherently part of you and then there are some other things that you're never going to be so you know let them go and from a leadership point of view you know make sure you surround yourself with people who have those things and you know that's how you create great teams but in some ways it's that letting go of what I won't be what I can never be that there's a huge relief in that that I don't have to be everything and this is you know in some ways I think this is the perfectionism coming out that I have to be everything but you know show me one person who is everything they just don't you know they don't exist to some extent I feel that in in our in our schooling and particularly at the at the level that I was at and at the type of school that I was at that where we want people to excel in everything you know the perfect person or the perfect yeah the perfect person in my school was academically you know brilliant a great sports person and then had some degree of art or drama or yes. um, music or something. I mean, there are very, very, very few people who are actually like that. And so in some ways it sets the sense up of, I'm not, you know, there's always something missing in me rather than gosh, you know, I'm really great at these things. And you've heard me tell the story before, but I got 98% in school C English and this was 25 years ago. I still think about those that 2% that I didn't get <laughs> and the person who beat me at my school. I mean, it never really occurred to me until recently as I've been working through this that what, a, what an amazing job. What an amazing job I did. I had a great exam. Right. <laughs> I wrote some right. great essays. But what was the thing I focused on that? Yeah, 2%. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you, you still think of that even having gone through this journey of recognising the limitations of your previous way of being. Yeah. Uh, the conversation internally never quite goes away. But, uh, obviously, you've got much better at managing it or, or something like that. But one, one thing I'd like to sort of put to you is that your school was a bit unusual in what it mm. seemed to expect of you or what you perceived that it expected of you. Mm. And, of course, anxiety does occur for many different reasons. And you're talking about a level of self-acceptance as being a path that we should be putting young people on to avoid these kinds of problems arising. And certainly mm. I can see clearly how not putting that, that the weight of expectation on young people to the extent that you certainly felt that it was on you. Mm. And it's a good question, you know, whether that was largely imposed largely by yourself or, or, actually or actually by the, by the by school the, or, or others. Mm. But for young people that are not necessarily in that situation of having a, a very ambitious drive at that age, which is probably relatively unusual, mm. what do you think a more general principle or, or key would be? Say you were being consulted by a Minister of Education about the anxiety problems that young people are experiencing. So at a more general level, what would you have to say about what could be done in an education system to help young people find themselves? Because, of course, most of them don't really know who they are or who they're supposed to be yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that it's that, that simplicity of the sense of what are the qualities that you bring to the world? You know, who who are you at the foundation, at the foundational level? You know, what are you, what are you good at? Because everyone is good at something. You know, sometimes, sometimes I work with stay-at-home mums and, and, you know, they, they have no idea, you know, what on earth they're going to do with their lives. But, 
what we work on is what are the qualities that you have that you bring, you know, you bring anywhere. And I think no matter where you are and, you know, socioeconomically, that is a really important thing to know about yourself. That gives you some kind of foundation to work from. And I guess there's so much focus on ticking a box or achieving a certain result that it misses the, how did you get to that result? That sense of what what was it that you brought to the table that enabled you to, to excel in this area that you know might stop you from excelling in another area? I mean, I'm I'm giving you a very qualitative answer, but I often think back to there would have been teachers who saw me and who knew what you know what I brought what I brought, what I was really great at, but they would never have said anything because that's not really how we're working people through the system we're talking about exams and tests and projects and you know in a lot of ways is very similar to what happens in organizations you talk about you know results and projects and and outcomes rather than well what was it about you that enabled you to get that outcome yeah I mean I I have a bit of a background in educational assessment and I'm very aware of the ways in which assessment well it certainly shapes what is valued at Mm. school almost by definition, because it, it's the marker of what has been achieved, at least mm. in an overt sense. Mm. And so obviously the things that yield yeah. grades and credentials and qualifications are the things that young people and their teachers will focus on most strongly. Yeah. Now, we probably can't get to a situation where we don't have any school credentials. It seems kind of important that we do. Yeah. But as you've implied, many other human qualities are left by the wayside if we focus only on those things that will be credentialed in exams. And we probably wouldn't want to see a situation where we set up examinations for, you know, what we might call soft skills. Uh, or, or would you? What would? What? I mean, what is the what? What is the way ahead here, where you have the situation? that we have, as all countries do, that there is a certain set of knowledge that is valued in assessment and exams and qualifications. But there are, there's, all the, there's so much more to life and so much more to being human. How can we negotiate that tension? Yeah, it's a really challenging question. As you know, I don't think there's a straightforward answer. I'm always really fascinated by people who I observed at school who were you know, you would have considered average at school and who have gone on to do amazing things because they obviously had qualities that were not measured and considered. But I think of, you know, when I think and as I've considered for my own children, you know, what are the skills that I want them to develop through their education? And my, my children are primary age, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of the way that they interact with knowledge. But, you know, what I want and what I my observation is that the people who succeed in the field, the chosen fields that they go into is the problem solving. It's the critical thinking, it's the creativity and imagination, it's communication. And it's very hard to evaluate those, but they are all ways in which we interact with knowledge. Well, I strongly suspect if we did try to evaluate them, we'd we'd mess it up because They're actually not easy things to measure. Things like creativity and criticality, because they Mm. they are abstract. Mm. And we do try. We have art exams and music exams and these things. But, you know, to get too deeply into that would would run a serious risk of actually 
focusing people on something that wasn't really creativity but just looked like it or, or you know yeah i mean you know. i think in some ways it reminds me of a job interview i had very early on in which it was a full day assessment and in, in you know the overlooking groups and they were watching the ways in which we interacted with the problems in which we applied creativity in which we communicated with each other and the, in the ways in which we led when you know when necessary and there was so much in that assessment i mean it's so subjective but yeah yeah I, I feel that there's there's a lot in that i mean one of my perhaps my greatest frustrations for people and in, in organizations and the adults that i work with is that is their inability to ask great questions and the implications of great questions and what great questions can do in organizations is absolutely transformational but that, that, i completely agree that that's a very important point and i'd like to come back that to that in a minute but first of all I just want to challenge a little bit the idea that we can go straight to creativity and clear communication and criticality without going via perhaps what we'd call the academic disciplines. Because it seems to me that actually subjects like science or history or mathematics or liter literature, if they're mm. attacked in an appropriate way, is what is gives what us, first of all, the knowledge base that we need, that we need to be creative and critical, and, critical. Mm. and secondly, Absolutely. the analytic tools that we need to do that. I do think mm. that we are, you know, we have natural creative impulses, mm. but we need to give them substance in order to make the most of them. Would you agree with that, or what's, I do, what's your take? Well, I think you have to interact with knowledge to be able to apply those and uh, to, to apply and develop those skills. Otherwise, you're in a you're sort of operating in a void. Mm. And but I wonder about the how the the extent to which we're developing them versus ticking the box. And if I can, you know, talk specifically perhaps about my experience with science and and history. I wasn't such a great science person, but I was very passionate about history. It was one of the one of my subjects that I enjoyed the most. And I had this experience with my mother, actually, who, you know, is a broad thinker about Vietnam. And, and I was writing about Vietnam or going through the, the curriculum at the time. And she challenged me on what I was writing or what I was thinking about. And I said to her, Mum, I'm just, this is what I've been taught. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just, I'm basically, you, you know, giving this back to them because this is what they want. This is what's in the history books. They want to hear this knowledge you know, reported back rather than questioned or challenged or is there a difference of opinion? And my mum was appalled and I was equally appalled at her because, you know, all I wanted to do was get my A. Yes. But I, you know, I really think that she had a valid point of, you know, on, on any historical subject, what really did happen? You know, that if you ask the Vietnamese, they're going to give you a very different answer to what I read in my in my textbook here. But the way that we, you know, teach it is more about ticking a box or, you know, ensuring that we wrote learn the information rather than question and understand and and consider it from different perspectives. Or at least that's the way it occurred to you as a, as a, a young person, that if you regurgitated back what you'd been told, that that would be the, the best way to ensure you got a top mark. Absolutely. Uh, and that was my agenda. <laughs> yes. And maybe that's true and maybe it isn't. I mean, maybe if, if you'd written a highly questioning essay in your exam, mm. 
you would have got an even better mark because your your marker would have thought, wow, this this person has really thought beyond the the facts and the and the things that were laid out. And of course, if that person was an historian, then they would have appreciated that because that's what historians do. But this does come back to that point you raised about great questions. Mm. And it's something that I, I think about a lot because I was trained I was, as a scientist and I've also, and also been an educator for a long time. Mm. And I always appreciate it when, when young people ask young me people questions ask that me challenge questions me. That and mm. I was trained to do that myself. And, and to be fair, I probably always had a little bit of a personality characteristic that made me challenge things. So I may have been a little different than you in that way <laughs> at school. And I did go to a different kind of school. But I guess where that leads to me is is to wonder what we can do to set up the dispositions that lead to great questioning in young people. Is what holds them back a, a fear of appearing stupid if they ask a question that they think the teacher will expect them to know the answer to already? Or mm. is it a fear of challenging, which perhaps in your in your case it sounds like it, that might have been a component of that. What do you think holds people back from asking great questions or to having perhaps the courage to, to ask the questions that are on their mind? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. To some extent, you know, from the time we're quite young, we're performing. You know, we want to look good. We want to seem like we know a lot or know as much as possible. And, you know, you see this well into to adulthoods. In fact, I'd say some of the best adults that I've worked with are the people who are like, I, I don't know, you know, what do you think? But mostly we're taught it's better to know than not to know. And I think in some ways that knocks out the natural curiosity that we have to consider there's, there's an alternative or maybe even the sense that there's a right and a wrong answer. This is the right answer and that's the end of it rather than, that's potentially the beginning of it. And, you know, so much more can go from there. It's like that there's some research that's done around, you know, the number of questions that a child will ask up until the age of five. And then at the age of five, suddenly that the number of questions that they ask per day just drops off dramatically. Mm. And mm. what a shame that is because, you know, that's when they're really starting to interact much more with the broader world. And that nurturing of the curiosity is so important. And so I think that... It, that foundational experience of being curious about the world and you know the enormous extent of it in some ways I think we knock that out of children quite quickly by saying this is the knowledge and this is it and I've got the answer and it's your it's for you to find the answer that I want rather than find your natural creativity curiosity and where could it be and what other possibilities are there yes I mean it's it's a bit of a tragedy in the sense that the disciplines that Give, give us the school subjects like science and history and mathematics are actually all about our, uh, asking questions and, mm. and they, they never draw conclusions once and for all. Mm. I mean, a scientific theory is always provisional. It, it, it can always be challenged with new evidence and, and new yeah. argumentation. Certainly mm. history is like that. It's an immensely contested discipline. And, yeah. and really anything that's anywhere near the cutting edge of knowledge is going to be that way because, as you said before, no, no one person is good at everything. And so we, we need to be prepared, prepared to be, first of all, yes. courageous enough to put our own strengths into Friends the mix into and the mix. humble enough to listen to what people with different strengths have to say about it. Yeah, and, and I think... 
also to be able to acknowledge that I don't know. I, yes. I really yes. don't know. And I'm not exposed or I'm not, I don't have to be really vulnerable to not know. I can just, I'm just a regular person who, who doesn't know everything. And you see this a lot in, in the space that I work in, in leadership, where you get into a leadership role and people think, well, you should know the answers. Well, I can tell you, you know, most people don't. The answers are a collection of discovery and information and varying points of view to reach an outcome. But without that perspective of I don't know, we're so limited, so limited to one person's answer and that's kind of the end of it and the conversation's over. I agree. Look, it's it's been really terrific to talk to you. There is one final thing that I'd like to ask before we wrap up, which is about leadership. So you've talked, first of all, about leadership being seen often as being at, perhaps at the top of a hierarchy in an organisation and having the, the job title of manager or, or some such. And then you talked about self-leadership, which is a very different take on that. It occurs to me that there's also a third lens that you can take on leadership, which is people who are in an organisation, perhaps not near the top of the hierarchy, and yet who display leadership of others not in a in an authoritarian sort of a way but just by the way they do what they do do you know what i'm talking about absolutely yeah i love those people (laughs) exactly and and so i'm wondering you know is there something that we can be doing in the education system because schools are very hierarchical environments and and probably necessarily so because first of all they have to be very organised, they've got a lot to do. And secondly, there are there is a natural hierarchy of expertise between a teacher and a student. You, you don't, I mean, setting aside certain modern the- theories of learning that I find a little bit odd, mm. we don't expect that students, students will be able to discover all knowledge for themselves, which is why we have expert teachers. So, so there is a knowledge hierarchy there. Mm. But so within a hierarchy, it is possible to display leadership even if you're not high in that hierarchy. And is there something that we could do in a, in a school situation to make that clearer to young people that there's a real opportunity to lead even if you're not the best, best sports, sports person, person or the or most academic or the best artist or whatever? There, there, are, there are ways that you can bring the qualities that you're talking about people have to discover in themselves to the mm. fore and use that in a way that benefits others. Yeah, it's difficult in a in the in the hierarchy and then high level of organization. But you know, I would say that there's something in the what what keeps on cropping up for me. I don't know if I'm going to articulate this very well. Is uh, you know the people that I've worked with in this space who are not leaders. They're people who explore possibilities and they're people who have new ideas and who can see other options. And they don't necessarily need to have a you know structural hierarchy hierarchy to be able to explore them but they're they're curious and they're driven to understand is there a better possibility here and I I don't I don't really know how you bring that within schools other than in you know in, in in projects or in problem solving you know how do we make this better within our school yeah it's not giving you a very satisfactory answer but I think it's in that almost in that freedom to explore possibilities, giving children that on some level that there is this this um this freedom of exploration of ideas that they can 
that they can go through and that they can express and that there's no fear around what the you know what they're expressing expressing and whether it's good or not that it's purely there for their own enjoyment and almost play it's almost play in some ways is looking at different possibilities well work can certainly occur as play can't it but i wonder as well and, if there's a, there's a an answer in how we teach things like science and and history yeah, and there is a there dilemma is- there educationally, I think, because to some extent you need a basis of knowledge, just kind of facts, if you will, before mm. you can deploy disciplinary thinking. So, mm. to in order to think like a scientist, you, you need to, to know some things that scientists have kind of worked out over over the ages, and in order to think like an historian, you need to know something about what happened in the past, at least mm. in some uh, time periods and places. So, mm. but I wonder I if wonder. we could be bringing the critical, critical aspects aspect. of the disciplines to the fore earlier on, earlier on. Mm. in order to in set order. people up to have the right kinds of mindsets to be able to ask questions. And if we could be using the disciplinary subjects as a vehicle for maturing people in that kind of way. Yeah, well, you know, as you were talking about whether I would whether I would have written in my essays and in history about the other possibilities. I mean, my mindset was I want to fit the box. I want to fit the mold Mm. because my observation, you know, as a child, as a teenager, is the people who fit the box, they're the ones who, you know, get the good marks. And well, my, I guess my hypothesis is they're the ones who are going to go places. But as I guess, as I evolve on my adult journey, I look and I think, actually, I'm not sure that they are. I think the people who, want to look outside of the box and consider alternate possibilities they are but the school system is fit the box get the marks or at least that's the way you perceived it and and so whether it is or not like that that's the effect it Mm. had on you and the effect that it has on many but Mm. i wonder if we were to convey more clearly Mm. to young people that we value them going Mm. outside the box as Mm. it were Mm. Mm. Uh, and that that actually might be rewarded in a, in an assessment or a qualification, you know, yeah. as long as it's done in a well-argued way and with, with some kind of yeah. basis that we uh, value that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that sometimes I work with clients on, you know, when we're working with a situation and I'll say, well, what are you curious about here? And often people will be stuck as I'm I'm not curious about anything but once they start to think about it you know they're curious about what that person thinks they're curious about what biases are coming to the table they're curious about you know what we did in the past and why that did work and why that didn't work but on the face of it the immediate response is invariably not much (laughs) but you know, with any scenario, there's so many potential questions and even just the the valuing of those questions, regardless of the answers, is, you know, I think that there's enormous value in that. It's, you know, how you do it in an educational context is well beyond what I know, but I, I just think there's so much and there are so many more answers beyond what you can see here right now. Indeed, and I think that that is something for education systems to grapple with because... Certainly, not only people's personal journeys, but in fact, democracies and and societies that value openness need to cultivate these qualities. And so, you know, thank you for the work that you do do with with older people to to try to help them on on these paths. And it's been terrific to talk to you today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to talk and um yeah, I mean I would just I'd love to see how how we can bring people out of school, you know, not having to face the challenges that so many of my generation adults are facing. You know, these should these could be things that we're we're done with and we just get to lead an exciting adult life pursuing things that we're interested in and asking great questions. <laughs> And that's what we hopefully have done some something of today. Th- thank you so much, Kate.